0: Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling
1: best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to tcs.com. That's tcs.com. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. Today, you're in for a treat. He's a great friend of mine for many years. He's a editor-in-chief of World Oil, chief forecaster. He and I go back, like I say, many years and have seen many transitions along the way and many transformations and where things are, have gone and where they're heading today. Kurt, Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. I always look forward to you and I visiting on a number of things.
1: Well, I do too. And wow, I guess the travels, you've traveled all over the world and talk about world oil and uh, you're in demand. I know that. And so before we go into all of that though, I think it's important for the audience to hear about you, hear about your travels and of life, not just uh, the journey of life. And if you will, tell them where it all began and up to now what's well, they're in for a treat to hear about that as well.
0: Well, I guess I could go back to the latter part of my collegiate days at Texas A&M University. Yes, where oddly enough, I never expected that this would be the case at the time, but some of my more statistical skills, let's say that go into the forecasting I do now, were oddly enough Shape my uh, work in the what we call the sports information office of the athletic department. That's kind of like the media office of the athletics section of the university. You know, we had all these statistical sheets we'd have to put together, whether it was football, baseball, basketball, whatever. And uh, a lot of analysis would go into that. And so, oddly enough, some of those skills I actually apply today in the Forecasting part of my duties, so I wound up with a journalism degree at A and Dabbled in a couple of things early on, wound up through just kind of sheer luck, really, going to work for the company where I'm at now, which for many years was called Gulf Publishing Company. It's now called Gulf Energy Information, but World Oil being one of the publications put out by the company, basically for the readership among professional folks in the oil and gas industry. And so worked a number of years at World Oil, took a sabbatical, went to work for a competitor when my original boss jumped ship many years ago. Spent a couple of years there, came back to this company, put in a good amount of years again, and then went and experienced a little different side of the industry, working for the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers here in Texas, the biggest statewide association And that was all very interesting because you got to see things more from the regulatory and operator point of view and uh, spent a little over four years doing that. And then about, gee, I guess it's been about almost 11 years ago, now came back to Gulf and to World Oil. Mm -hmm. So I've been the editor-in-chief for a little over six and a half years. I've seen an awful lot in the many years in this industry.
1: Well, yes, you have, and uh, especially in the last five to six years as well. Uh, things have changed in a dramatic way to see how the price alone have varied and also uh, debate on policy and so forth. We like to cover quite a bit here in the short time we have. We won't be able to cover everything, so that means I'll have to have you back. So There you I'd like go. To, <laughs> I'd like to start off with, tell us about world oil. I know there's a lot of forecasting involved, like you have have done through the years, but what else, for those that want to... In fact, you might even mention the website to go to as well, because there's those out there that, if they're not have a subscription, they probably would like to.
0: Well, World Oil is a magazine intended for the upstream sector of the oil and gas industry, so it's for professionals in that particular sector, and uh, we are primarily a technology publication where we cover ongoing advances in. Uh, Technology, whether it's exploration, drilling, completions, production, whatever it might be offshore, some of these things are highly technical, some are a little more generalized, but between what I call the technology focuses and the articles are maybe a little more driven by what we call management issues, uh, that forms the bread and butter of our offering each month. So we have been in existence 106 years. And uh, hopefully, we'll be around for quite a bit longer. But we, as I say, focus on things that are of particular importance to the core readership. That would be not only senior management in many of these operators and service companies, but certainly mid-level engineers, explorationists, et cetera.
1: Well, you've definitely traveled. I know that uh, every time I've visited with you as of the last few years, you've been all over the world, giving talks, and you still, I guess, are giving talks and going to conferences. Is that
0: right? Oh, for sure. Now, we did have an extended period of doing nothing, (laughs) but then again, so did everybody else from about mid-March of 2020 to really the early part of this year. It's taken that long for things to begin to get back to semi-normal, and really, even now, we're not at quite the normal level that we would expect, but I think we're getting there, and next year should probably be a... uh, what we would call a breakout year for travel, I did have the opportunity to go to, for instance, uh, Schlumberger puts on a digital forum each year, and it was held this year in Lucerne, Switzerland, Mm -hmm. and a lot of interesting discussion about how the digital transformation is affecting and shaping and changing not only the upstream sector, but the entire oil and gas industry.
1: Right. You know, there was a talk that I'd, I'd started in 2018 and given it several times. I mentioned it Several times while I've been on these episodes, because it touches, I think everyone to this day is the digital transformation from the whiteboard to the boardroom, and we find that, or I found that there was somewhat of a disconnect from the whiteboard, meaning the those that are entering or have great ideas of the future with the board itself. So the disconnect, whether that's ESG or whether it's other things that are coming to the forefront, can you talk about the challenges and especially not just ESG? but the challenges of a workforce development. And what you see in the future, how do we meet this challenge? And because once we get the green light to start drilling again, which I believe we will over a period of time, then that's something we need to be aware of, that we we don't have the training necessary for a lot of the folks that, as far as the numbers. So what do we do? How do we meet the challenge?
0: Well, you touched on one of the subjects that I've been focusing on quite a bit lately, and that is, in general terms, personnel throughout the industry. And what I mean by that is we're not only having a problem in the higher skill set areas, you know, like engineering, geology, geophysics, etc., cetera, having enough people to go around and operate the industry properly, but I'm talking about down at the field operations level. One of the biggest problems I hear mentioned right now from operators and uh, also by their partners in the service firms, is not enough people to man the drilling rigs. Mm -hmm. Something as basic as that, somehow during the uh, pandemic, when we were at a lower level of activity, a lot of people just either left the industry, gave up on trying to enter it, or whatever. And so we have a significant shortage of people to man the rigs, and we'll talk more about how that's affected activity in a little bit here. But Yeah. Personnel is a serious problem. I just got through when SPE had its annual meeting here in Houston a couple of, from the time we're talking right now, a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the universities had a booth at the exhibition portion of SPE's annual meeting. And the fellow there was saying that he said, all of us, meaning all of the major universities that have petroleum, engineering, or geology departments, he said, the biggest problem we've got is being able to convince the young people that this is something still worth getting into. Right. There is a perception among some of the younger people that these are old, dying lines of work that aren't going to be around when they're 50 years old. Therefore, they should not go into it at all to begin with. That hardly is the truth, but that is somewhat the perception out there. And we've got to work to reverse that perception.
1: Mm-hmm. As far as the forecasting goes, I'd love to hear from the chief forecaster of World Oil. And I know this will, you've got some time here. Definitely want to give you the time allotted that you'd like to have to discuss that. So the floor is open to give a forecast projections and some data that can be provided to the listeners.
0: Well, basically, when we do the forecasting every six months, we do a winter version and a summer version. The thing that we track most, obviously, is drilling activity, and we also track production growth and that kind of thing as well. But speaking to the drilling aspect of the operations, one of the things that we wanted to see as we did the summer forecast was how much growth was there from the end of last year to the middle of this year and how much growth might we see in the second half of this year as we look forward to even more prosperity hopefully next year. And it's very interesting. It's almost like Two different industries over the course of two six-month periods. In the first half of the year, for instance, the rig count compiled by our friends at Baker Hughes was growing at about 6.2 rigs. This Now, these are U.S. figures. This was growing at about 6.2 rigs per week during the first 26 weeks of the year. Now, since the halfway point, since the end of June, the rig count has only been growing at 1.3 rigs per week. And that's hardly, you know, anything to hang your hat on, so it's very very different. Now there are reasons for that, and you're also going to see it show up in the actual number of wells drilled as those numbers continue to roll in throughout the rest of the second half of this year. The primary reason this goes back to what we just talked about, lack of personnel, or shall we say maybe even lack of the right personnel mm-hmm. for the job intended. But the biggest thing we've been hearing from the operators, number one, is we cannot get enough people. I've had some people tell me that probably another 50 rigs have been put to work already this year if there were only enough people to man them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's about another 7 to 8% increase in the rig count that you're not seeing just because of lack of manpower. So that's one issue. But there are many other items that figure into the activity level we're seeing at present. And one of those is the high cost of various items, the high cost of steel being number one on the list. Mm -hmm. And related to that, the cost of OCTG, in other words, oil country tubular goods. And then just the increases due to inflation of a number of other items used in drilling and completing wells. Everything from Frack sand, to oil field chemicals, to even the availability of trucks, enough trucks to move things around, uh, the availability of drill bits, you name it, it's figured in there. So that's another item. Another item figuring into this equation is a fact, uh, you remember, Mark, at the beginning of this year, we had an awful lot of independent operators, particularly the large ones, right. say, hey, you know, We're going to be fiscally responsible. We're not going to do like previous cycles. And the minute the price of oil goes up, go crazy and take all the money we've made and plow it back into drilling. Not going to happen. And for the most part, these companies have been very studious in staying with that formula, sticking to that promise to create shareholder value and not increase activity near as much. And that continues to play into the overall picture. So you've got all these different things. And then the other ingredient that I would add to this equation is government. And unfortunately, I don't mean that in a good way. You know, the federal government continues to try to seal off areas to oil and gas drilling. They've been monkeying around most of the year now with the uh, offshore picture in the Gulf of Mexico with regard to how many lease sales they may have, not have, when to do them. I just saw another story today where there's an issue at foot here where they did some mathematical calculations about environmental impacts on certain animal species from oil and gas drilling, and they made a mistake in their calculations. And the federal government has known about these mistakes since early April and has dragged its feet in admitting it and doing something about it to fix the schedule with respect to number of leases granted onshore which would also increase activity.
1: So where does this lead, Kurt, in the global perspective? We've seen the U.S. You've given statistics there and challenges we have, but what on the global scale? And I guess we're looking at, I remember you gave a webinar, I believe it was, not too long ago. And I participated in listening about some of the forecast on a country-by-country basis as well. But what's going to happen when it comes to the world oil picture? And in, in fact, might add natural gas in that equation.
0: Well, for sure. As I say, all things being considered, U.S. activity still at this juncture is up about 34% from where it was last year. We're predicting overall this year that the United States will gain from the first half to the second half about 12% and stay about 30% or more ahead of last year's figure. And Canada is also going to perform well. And we're looking at activity in Canada being up somewhere around 32, 33 percent. Now, you get outside the U.S. and Canada, it's a little different situation, especially from continent to continent, region to region. For instance, we expect great things out of Africa, particularly West Africa. That'll be up 19 percent. We expect the Middle East to be solid, not a big gainer, but up about 5 percent. South America will have a little bit of a rebound up 14 percent. Western Europe, on the other hand, where they could really use the extra resources, not so good, minus about 2 percent. A lot of that can be traced to current governmental policy in the Western European countries, particularly in the UK. Not so much in Norway, where they've followed what I call a multi-track philosophy of developing different resources, all at the same time, but in places like Germany, Italy, France, not so good. And a lot of that, again, goes back to governmental philosophy. But overall, we think the world, including North America, and this does include U.S. and Canada, overall up about 18%. Now, if we take the U.S. and Canada out, the rest of the world's up maybe, I think, about 12%. So you can see what an influence those two countries have on the entire picture. People will want to know about Russia, I'm sure, because of everything that's been going on this year. And we can tell you that the Russians last year, their drilling was down roughly about 5 to 6%. We think that the uh, drilling in Russia will be up about 8% this year. Now, oddly enough, their production last year held fairly steady despite everything. And the entire region, and that includes Russia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, all of those former Soviet republics and a few others, the entire region, we think the production was up nearly 2% last year. We think it'll go up a little more again this year. And they were just over 13 million barrels a day, all the countries put together. So they'll probably pick up another couple of hundred thousand barrels a day without any trouble.
1: OPEC. You know, remember years ago, we got involved, we're both involved somewhat with a a group called the Energy Advocates. In fact, you were a recipient of the Energy Advocate of the Year Media Award several years ago. And in fact, I think you had more than one honor through the years. But the group was founded in 1973-74 timeframe because of the oil embargo back in that timeframe. Since then, we still, we thought, well, OPEC's gone away and they were history in a sense. Well, that's not true. Where do you see OPEC in the equation, and where will they be five years from now?
0: Well, I would say in the near term, OPEC is definitely back in the driver's seat, partially because of their own, what we call, you know, upstream performance in the drilling and completion and production categories, but also because of the fact that the U.S., after very carefully trying to nourish and encourage its own production immediately reversed course when the current administration took office in January of last year, and we began to reverse all the good things that happened in the previous four years. So it's partially what they've done on a positive note and partially what we in the U.S. have done on a negative note. But I think that OPEC, by virtue of the percentage of world production that it controls, will continue to be a very strong influence probably uh, throughout the next five years you see movement in Kuwait and uh, Abu Dhabi to increase production substantially. There's a project on the books in Kuwait to increase their output about 20 percent, and there's uh, certainly several projects that have been well publicized in the last six months over in Abu Dhabi where they're doing similar work. So I think you're going to continue to see a very strong influence that way. Now, I will say this. I was really taken aback by the fact that our own US administration did something I thought was extremely ill advised. I mean, they actually sent a letter over to Saudi and to OPEC plus begging to have any kind of production cut held off until after the US midterm elections. Right. And I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, I don't know if it's deliberately self destructive or whether it's extremely naive but it was really, really a bad foreign policy error. And as you can see, the reaction from the other side was, well, okay, we'll go ahead and cut 2 million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. That certainly is going to tighten the market.
1: Definitely messaging going around and including China. So where's China fit into the equation?
0: Well, you know, the Chinese, not for lack of trying, have had a lot of trouble increasing their production rate in excess of 4 million barrels a day. They're stuck at about 3.95 million barrels a day right now. And I just don't see that growing much beyond four. They'll work as hard as they can to push it up, but they've been trying to increase production for the last 25 years and not with a lot of success. I mean, they've been up above 3 million for quite some time, at least the last 12 years that I can think of, and probably more than that. So... Any gains they've had have been very, very small in the grand scheme of things. So what they have to do is go out and establish control over additional supply wherever they can find it. So they've gone into places like Africa in certain countries, and they've poured a lot of money into helping develop oil production in some of those countries and then building export pipelines out to one of the coastlines of the continent and thereby being able to export that oil back home. And you've seen this pattern repeated, not only in Africa, you've seen a little bit of it in South America, seen quite a bit of it in Southeast Asia, a little bit in Australia. They've even tried to do some form of that here in the U.S. So it's a very wide, very strong effort to exert control over additional sources of supply so that they know that they have something they can count on.
1: As far as the energy transition, uh, world oil, not just the company, but world oil overall, where's it going? What's the future of oil and natural gas? And there's a lot of folks that say, you know, are we heading towards the green energy transition? Some think that the oil and gas industry is on its last days. Where are we?
0: Well, I don't think either of the extremes is accurate. It's somewhere in the middle, as usual. But Mr. Putin's invasion in Ukraine certainly threw a monkey wrench into the expectations and, dare I say, baked in conclusions of some of the folks over in Western Europe about how things were going to happen. And as they quickly discovered, they'd put too many eggs into the Nord Stream pipeline basket, for instance too much reliance on Russian natural gas supplies and, to a lesser extent, crude oil supplies. And they're finding out the hard truth that, you know, you can't just go whole hog in one direction overnight. It's got to be a well-thought-out, graduated transition. Mm -hmm. And those words don't seem to apply to what's gone on in Western Europe over the last five to eight years. It's been a mess of policy actions, and it's not a coincidence that the UK is rapidly reversing course. You saw where the new prime minister, Liz Truss, took the ban off of fracking in the UK. I don't know how much practical good that will do because there wasn't that much activity slated that would involve fracking in the first place. But it's a symbolic gesture by which she is indicating to her uh, constituency there that They've got to take a different course. I mean, I've seen talk recently of several field projects that have been considered and then put on the back burner by a number of the uh, larger operators in Europe. That they are now reconsidering those projects in the North Sea or other producing areas. So, I think that Western Europe has figured out, or is starting to figure out, some people. It's interesting, there's just no hope for them in terms of looking at things from a uh, practical point of view, but I think a lot of folks are realizing, hey, we've got a media problem we have to address, and uh, we have the real risk that we're running of some people freezing to death during the winter in certain parts of Europe, and they've got to do something to address that. Now, when I talk about there's no hope for some people, I'm specifically referring to a recent action by the government of Austria, where they're taking to task, in fact, suing the European Union Parliament for allowing natural gas and nuclear power to be semi-considered clean technologies in terms of energy capacity development. So in other words, some of the more radical elements over in Europe said, oh, no, no, we cannot use the word clean or reliable or whatever you want to say about gas and nuclear power. Remember the Germans, after that terrible tsunami over there in Japan back in 2011 and the damage to that complex of nuclear power station buildings there. Remember, the Germans reacted and said, oh, my goodness, we don't want that to happen here. So they began formulating plans to shut down all their nuclear plants and convert everything to wind and solar and hydro. Well, that's good. But the problem is, number one, they still don't have enough capacity. Number two, you can't do it fast enough. And number three, they didn't count on Mr. Putin's invasion. So you add that all up together and it's foolish to say, well, we can't consider gas a nuclear power. But the government of Austria or the environmental minister is from the Green Party. And you have a coalition a government between one party and the other party. And that's how this individual got into the position of minister of environment and then formulating this suit against the EU. You know, don't you people have bigger things to worry about? Like, how are you going to get your citizenry through a cold winter?
1: Right. The challenges are so important to all of us and how they meet those challenges. And so, this forecasting you provide and the leadership you provide through all these years have been essential to help us find pathways and a roadmap or roadmaps to our energy future. And so, I'd like to visit with you further. We're down to the last few minutes here, and I want to ask some advice from you as far as measurements of success. On a personal note, for those listening, there's upcoming leaders. There are those that are looking at how they can improve in the senior management or different positions they have throughout the energy industry, especially the oil and gas industry. Can you provide measurements of success that have been important in your life that you could pass along to them and reference some of those as well?
0: Well, one of the things I would say is, at the end of the day, is what you're doing, does it make a difference? Is there a way to see that you're making a difference? We like to think here at World Oil, we make a difference in terms of helping people understand what's going on in the market, what they can do to take advantage of the market in a positive way. But yeah, I mean, sure, you've got personal benchmarks in terms of where you start out in a particular company, what positions you hold, some of the technologies that you get involved with. I think there are several ways to look at that. One is overall, your tenure in a particular company or even a governmental agency, what are some of the positive things that you've brought to the table? How have you improved the quality of life? Mm How, especially in this industry, how have you helped to advance some of the specific technologies? I mean, I've seen an awful lot of advancement over the last 30 plus years in this industry. We, you know, it used to be the horizontal wells were quite the experimental thing. We've gotten way past that, as you know. Fracking, that really didn't come to the fore till just under the last 20 years. So many ways that a person can affect and improve the functioning of his own company, the industry, the quality of life for his fellow man in the country. I think you can look at all of these things and gauge your own success. And as I say, I think a lot of it goes beyond what have you done to just move from one position to another. As I say, what have you done to affect the quality for your fellow man? What have you done that's a common sense thing that improves function while maybe reducing cost. We've had a lot of that in the last 10 years. So many different ways to look at it.
1: Wonderful words of wisdom, Kurt. Appreciate that so much. And you've been listening to Kurt Abraham, editor in chief of world oil. And he's a chief forecaster as well, based in Houston, Texas. We appreciate you appreciate your friendship through the years and if you will folks go to the review page and fill out the review we'd love to hear from you give us some comments and advice along the way you've been listening to the energy fellows podcast i'm mark stansbury remember the future of energy depends on us
0: join us again next week on the energy fellows podcast a production of the oil and gas global network to learn more go to oggn.com